Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 43 of the Gaming Moguls podcast. The only podcast that for the second year in a row did not win the Spiel des Jahres because we were viewed as being not family friendly. I'm your host tonight, Mark Teske, along with my co-host, Jake Klappenstein. Jake, how you doing tonight? Always wonderful, my man. I think you're family friendly thinking about that because you don't swear. I've slipped through a couple of swears a couple of times. I don't think you've gotten <laughs> the big old beep that you've got or the little uh, little slide slide rule kind of thing. I did accidentally leave a couple in last time. There are a couple of soft ones. And as we were listening to our last podcast as a family road tripping back from Georgia, my daughter gave me a daddy language. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> was it me or was it you? Uh, it was you. Oh, of course. It's always me. It's always me. I actually swear a lot in person, and I can't believe that somehow my brain knows to not swear in the podcast. It's very strange. <laughs> um, my wife never, ever, ever swears ever, and she like puts out an anti-swearing cloud around her. So you just you feel so bad swearing around her that I just tend to not do it at home either. There it is. So speaking of randomly swearing, I've had a few occasions to just randomly swear as I realized that there's been a few games I've been playing for kind of a long time. That I really screwed the rules up on. And <laughs> it turns out you've had the same experience recently. And honestly, Jake, your stories are better than mine. So I'll start with the first one that isn't as mean to me as kind of the other ones are. I have some good family folks, some cousins that are in town from New York for a month because work is flexible and everybody can work wherever. Now they decide to come home for a month, which is great. And a big game that they like a lot is Root. And I haven't played it that much. I think I've played it with you twice, maybe three times. And I actually haven't even read the rules. So I don't, I'm, I'm not a root expert or anything. I don't know how a lot of things work. I've always been just a passenger on the root express. Yeah, but, I'm pretty sure that every time we've played, I've done the rule teach and the rules uh, review and You've the rules the manager. I have not been the game runner. I've been just correct. Like, yeah. You've been the GM. I've been a PC. So they pull it out to play and we're kind of going through the rules, just kind of quick little heads up and everything. And we're talking about how to score points. And they're like, oh, the only way you can score points is by whatever your board says. And I'm like, or removing cardboard from the board. Because <laughs> <Mr. laughs> yes. Mark is, that's how you've always clarified it. If you remove tokens or buildings from the board of an opponent's color or token or whatever, you get a victory point for each one you remove. And they didn't know that. Um, I think they'd played it like four or five times without that rule, which is wild because... That's our really major scoring mechanism. Yeah. I mean, it's like the main reason you fight people is so you can kill their leftover stuff and get a lot of points. Because towards the end, I, I wiped out like six or seven buildings or something on my last turn and was able to make me win. So anyway, that was a funny one. The bad one was, though, these are the next two I are 100% are my fault. Mark was kind enough to teach me innovation. And I ended up trading for a copy right before the whole COVID scenario happened. Oh, love it. Love it. It's a great game. And I was playing with my wife. And for some weird reason, I just didn't read the setup, which is usually the thing I'll read really detailed. If I think I know how to play a game, I'll still read the setup. And I didn't put one card of every number down for the achievements pile. Okay. <laughs> and so you could just well, achieve. What were you anything. using for achievements? You were using the cards, but you could, it was the top of the deck. You could just top deck an achievement. So then it became this oh. weird thing where you'd return cards so you could achieve if you didn't have a lot of points. That oh. became the meta instead of trying to <laughs> score more. It was just all about achieving. Okay, that's unusual, but all right. That's Which, a different game. Yeah, I felt pretty bad because I can't remember even how it happened. I think we were, oh, we were setting it up with the same, my cousins who were in town and they, they started putting out one of each. I'm like, what's this for? And then I just immediately hit myself in the forehead because I knew it was 
but I it's not just me. I know you have at least one or two rules mess ups as well. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've played the latest release in the Iron Rails series, Ride the Rails, a couple of times at this point. And the first time through, we thought, oh, that was pretty fun and so forth. So I thought I'd teach my family to play it. And as I was reading through the rules, I suddenly realized I'm like, wait a minute. You don't do all of the phases each person on their turn. So when a person takes their turn, they don't just get a stock share. Then they lay their rails. Then they move a passenger. No, no. Everybody does the stock acquisition, then everybody lays their rails, then everybody moves passengers. And oh, by the way, that stock achievement thing goes in reverse turn order. So if you take a share of stock, then the person who's worse than you sees, oh, they're going that route. I'm going to take it first. And oh, by the way, that person is going to get to move a passenger before you do. That makes the game quite a bit more interesting, Jake. Yeah, I'm actually surprised you missed it because there's a handful of like little like bits of the rules that kind of explain that, you know, when they only say you get to do one stock action. That to me kind of made it seem like, okay, we all do that consecutively. And then the other one being the turn order. But I guess there is something to be said about game rules. They don't always just give what you do on your turn explicitly. And to me, that's what I need. That's what I need is an outline to say, okay, well, what do I do on my turn? Maybe make it like a bullet pointed list because then I can visually see all the things I get to do and in what order. I just viewed it as the steps of a turn. These are the steps of the turn you do. You get a stock share, then you lay your track, then you move a passenger. Next. And not realizing that those were completely different phases and that you go in turn order for each phase. Right. Anyway, it uh, certainly made the game more interesting. And uh, maybe I'll talk about that a little bit later in what we played. (laughs) Well, yours seems so light compared to my next one. There's a little small light game called Dairyman. And we bought it, I think, two or three Gen Cons ago. It's just a quick little light game. It kind of feels like an Oink game. It's designed by Homo Sapiens Lab or developed by that group. And they kind of have the same design ethos to Oink. So I like it. but. The main thing you're doing in that game is you're rolling for sets. And my brain thought it was sets meaning pairs, but it's sets of dice that add up to 10. And I don't know why my brain just couldn't figure that out. And so we're like three-fourths of the way through this pretty light game that's pretty easy to remember. And I remember skimming the rules to be like, do you know you got this? And I, my, 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 my inner monologue said, yeah, of course you got this. And it turns out towards the end because you can bust in the game. And so functionally, if you roll your dice and you can't get a pair of two or a set of three that add up to 10, you bust and you don't make milk. And I was wondering, I was like, how do you bust on the first turn with eight dice and you just need pairs? Yeah, unless you're unlucky to roll two sixes or something like that. No, because no. And I was just doing straight pairs like two ones would work. And no matter what, if you roll seven dice, you will at least have a pair. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm Because there's only six options. So I was just sitting there just like scratching my head like. How did he bust? And then I remember, because my confusion was two fives is a really good pair. And two fives is kind of what you're looking for to get a best 10 because you don't want to waste all your dice. But that's that's mood. I'll talk about the game as well. Sure. And then our final one, this actually came up online. I was reading about this on like often missed rules thread. And uh, I think it'll very much be important for us. What is it, Mark? <sighs> the game that we seem to have more screw ups on than really any other game that we ever play, which for a game we've played a lot, you'd think by now we had this pretty well dialed in. And by the way, we've played it with enough different people. You'd also think that we'd have this figured out. I think it's a tragedy to the commons. I think every, I, I think the only person that's fully read the rules is Kirk. And we've, I've played this game without Kirk many, many times. I suppose we should probably tell everybody what game we're talking about. Jake, where do you actually put the starting people in Great Western Trail? Apparently not at the very furthest start spot. You can do anywhere in your first team. 
<laughs> you can, you can do whatever you want, but that makes a completely different game because then you get a build different. It's not this race. Or if you want to just, if you have a decent hand, you can do like one thing and get quick cash. You know, it's not this big, long drug through where you can't do everything cash wise. So it's, I think it's going to completely change the game next time we play. Yeah, so we were completely making a mistake on the rules that we believed that in Great Western Trail that every turn you need or every time you started the game, everybody needed to start on the first square and move forward from there. Everybody'd hit the same things at the same time in the same order. And there'd be a bit of a race to get to the place where you could buy engineers or cattlemen or whatever. And then everybody'd kind of more or less arrive at Kansas City at the same time. Yeah, you can actually start like one space before Kansas City, just make a quick delivery, get a whole bunch of cash and then start over at the beginning and zip through with a big advantage over everybody else. Perfectly legal. Never noticed that was an option. Right. Or start at the building spot real quick and get a building down quickly so you can get the big spot or go to the cattle spot quickly if you like what it's out there before you want to deliver. It's just going to be a completely different game with that. I don't know how we played that so wrong. I just think (laughs) I think the main thing is I don't think we've read the rules. I think it's the same thing with Root. I've played Root four or five times now and I was skimming the rules while we were playing and it was pretty enlightening. I should just read the rules. Reading the rules isn't that hard. I should just get over my laziness. I know. And another one on Great Western Trail that we always seem to have to revisit every time we play it is how to actually put the workers out on like the time tracker sideline thing because we always screw up where like the next current round thing is. I just think a big reason that we've had so many recently too is we're just kind of out of board game shape, you know? I mean, I've, I haven't been true, the same true, level definitely. we used to. I haven't been reading rules the same level as I used to. I haven't been like interacting with these things as much as I used to. So, but anyhow, we, we make mistakes. We are just humans. The moguls are just humans like everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and being that we're talking about teaching, that's a great time to uh, foreshadow the fact that that will be our main topic tonight is how do the moguls teach board games and what are our thoughts about how to teach board games and why do we do things the way we do and how can you improve your board game teaches? Isn't that a perfect transition after saying how badly we bollocks up the rules? Absolutely. I don't know if anybody's going to stay and listen to the how we teach because clearly uh, with the rules errors we have, <laughs> we're not very good at it. Um, but before we do that, let's talk about what we played this last couple of weeks. I've seen you've been playing some cool stuff. I have. I've actually had an amazing week of gameplay this week between my family and online on Tabletop Simulator. And I've had a chance to play some really big cornerstone games that I've been very excited about. First game is actually one that's the most recent game, one that I just played last night with three close friends. Martin Wallace's Brass Lancashire, published by Roxley Games. The deluxe edition came out uh, approximately two years ago. And honestly, Jake, my copy has been sitting on my unplayed, my own personal copy shelf of shame since then, which is unfortunate. So this does not apply then, right? Because you didn't move your pieces around. Ooh. Oh, God darn it. Ah, <laughs> the one blade. I mean, TTS, right? You didn't have to. OK, own this. The, uh, <laughs> God darn it. The upside of this one is that uh, I have been meaning to play Brass Lancashire a lot since Brass Birmingham is absolutely one of my favorite games. In fact, I think in our top games of 2020 list, it clocked in at number one. So I have been really meaning to revisit Lancashire and see. How does it stack up versus Birmingham? Because I've played Birmingham, I don't know, six, eight times, and I've only played Lancashire once at Gen Con a couple of years ago when it first came out and really didn't understand brass at the time. And so I wanted to come back into it with more mature eyes and see what I actually thought of it. Gotcha. Oh, it was great. Oh, it was awesome. We had such a fun time playing it last night. Again, we played it four player. 
myself and two other players had played Birmingham. The fourth player had never played either. So he was coming in fresh to the whole brass world. Okay. He was a completely fresh brass guy. See, I think I've played it two or three times before you played it that one time at Gen Con. I think I played it twice or one time before that. I think you had mentioned that, that you had played it before, but it had been a long time ago. Correct. So I was really, I was dying to see how it stacked up because I've always heard that Lancashire is kind of tighter and less forgiving. It's kind of more the Agricola of the pile, whereas Birmingham is more the Caverna of the pile, where it's a little more forgiving. There's lots more things you can do. And if you make an early mistake, you're not going to be paying for it the entire rest of the game. So I wanted to see how that actually played out. And holy moly, is it tight. Holy, (laughs) holy moly. Uh, We felt like we were playing a four player game on a two player board. Oh, wow. It was like literally the second turnaround in the rail era. So the game plays out over two eras. There's the canal era and the rail era. And what you're trying to do in the game is you're trying to build industries and ship or deliver their goods or have their goods used up so that they flip over and score and increase your income. There's two eras. One is the canal phase, which maps out to canals being all the rage in England in like the late 1700s. And then once railroads were invented in the 18, early 1800s, canals just disappeared overnight, and then it was all about rails. And that's exactly what happens. You build up a bunch of canals and a bunch of industries, then you score them, then you wipe them all out, and then you basically start over again with rails and do it up again bigger. Man, by like the second turn during the rail era, the board was already two-thirds full, and there was already getting to be tough to find places to put stuff. Yeah, I remember that because it was, it was one of those things where like if somebody takes the I can't remember the symbols, but somebody takes that spot. That's it. You know, it's not like you have somewhere else to go and it's going to really impede you. That's it. And in Birmingham, like you're but you bump into each other. People get in your way, but it's not like this constant thing where somebody's always elbowing you in the ribs. I bet there was a dozen times last night when I'd put when somebody would put down an industry or a rail line and you'd hear somebody else in the line just go, no. You just trashed my next three rounds. That's it. And then it just becomes this thing where it's like, do you even look at the board state before it even happens? You know? (laughs) Well, you kind of do have to plan ahead. You know, you've got only so many cards and things you can do in your hand. And you're probably working towards a couple things. You have some ideas on what you need to do. And in a few cases, especially gets on towards the end of the game. There's a limited number of things you even can do. So when you've got kind of, okay, this is my plan. This is what I got to do. This is what I got to do. This is what I got to do. Oh, crap. Somebody else just took it before me. That makes timing so much more important in this game than it does in Brass Birmingham. If you wait to do anything, it may not and likely will not even be there by the time you get around to it. So there's a bit of a race to get stuff done as fast as you can. I've always heard the old story that you want to like the last round of the canal era, try to do something that spends no money so that you can get first in the turn order in the rail era with a lot of money. And I now understand why. And I, I did that exact thing and popped off with uh, basically blocking out all the rail lines going into and out of Manchester, I think, the kind of the big central city there. Yeah. Everybody else was like, oh, you just blocked all the routes and took all the coal. I went, yes, I did. <laughs> yes, I did. That's awesome. Yeah, I've, I've always heard the comparison of that of being a, just a little tighter and a little meaner. Well, more than just a little tighter. And furthermore, I actually ultimately ended up winning the game by a pretty good margin. And I think that's a lot due to timing. Like I timed out the going from the canal era into the rail era so that I could kind of maximize turn order there. And also, I didn't wait till the very last turn to kind of go off. I I built a big shipyard, which was worth a ton of points. 
And I delivered all my stuff to ports like three turns from the end. The problem is, is I was aggressively poor for the last three rounds of the game. I had no money, whereas everybody else had 40 to $60 and I had 11. So I couldn't do anything the last two or three rounds. And I thought I was going to lose for sure. Well, what ended up happening in the last couple of rounds is the distant cotton market, which gets trashed a little bit every time somebody sells to the distant yep. cotton market. Because I got in first, I still got in while cotton was a good price. And by the time that Phil and John, who were waiting to ship in the last rounds, got to it, the market was so trashed, they couldn't actually even, they weren't even allowed to sell them. And they ended up probably leaving 20 points a piece on the table. Yeah, just because they can't ship it. I remember that as well. And then it, and isn't there a flipping mechanism too? So you're not 100% sure how profitable the offshore market's going to be for cotton? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, uh, there's an offshore market kind of random set of tiles that you flip over and it's, uh, zero to minus two. And I, I believe it always just goes down. And once it hits the bottom, once it hits the X on the bottom, you aren't allowed to ship. So you might be like one or two notches from the bottom and then flip that thing over, just hoping. And that's actually what happened to me at the end of the canal era. Yep. I was looking, it was very down near the bottom. It was two spots from the bottom and I really needed to ship. And I thought, well, there's a chance I may trash the market not being able to ship, but I got to give it a roll. And fortunately, I flipped a minus one, which didn't close the market, and I was able to ship. And then the next person did close the market. Yeah, it really made timing important. Um, it's way more interactive than Birmingham was. Like, we were just bumping into each other hard, you know, hard elbows to the ribs on every turn around the corner. Another comparison I realized is that there's a concept called overbuilding in Brass Birmingham and Brass Lancashire, where you can replace one of your factories with a better factory, or if there's no resources, you can replace somebody else's factory and kind of refresh the board. And honestly, I've, I don't believe I've ever seen anybody do it more than once or twice in Brass Birmingham. And it was almost dead mandatory in Brass Lancashire because there's just, you run out of spaces and right. the main coal market might be at uh, five bucks per piece of coal. And that's the only way to get more resources out on the board is to overbuild and sell them back to the market and make money off of it. So that that became a must rather than just this random thing that nobody ever did. Gotcha. Well, it's it's so neat just to see how much development and small tweaks to a game can really change something, right? Do you still prefer Birmingham? Interesting. I'm 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 a little conflicted. It's I feel much like you felt after playing Agricola, after playing Caverna a whole bunch of times, where you're like, boy, I always thought Caverna was the absolute answer, and now I'm not so sure. Right. I feel a bit like that right now. Gotcha. Where it's just you're broken. You don't you you want to go back to the time before. <laughs> I want to go back to a time of innocence and simplicity before I understood this and. And polling the table, too. Actually, uh, Eric didn't have anything to compare to. It was the first brass experience he had, but he loved it. Phil was pretty strong. He preferred Lancashire to Birmingham, which was funny because he's really the Euroiest guy. Right. And this one's way tighter and meaner. Less Euroy. Yeah. But he, he basically said, boy, I, I think I like this one better. I mean, how many times did we yell at each other for stealing spots? And I mean, that hurts, but it's fun. I couldn't argue with him. Gotcha. Well, that's great. I'm happy you guys enjoyed it. I'd like to play that one again. It's on my list, but it's one of those things where it's it, you have to sign up for at least two plays of that one mm -hmm. and both Birmingham, Lan Lancaster and Birmingham. Where, and then it's just going to be a comparison. You probably have to clarify a bunch more which one you'd like to play more, which it sounds a little exhausting. Uh, yeah, that's that's a bunch of playing. It didn't, The play I did end up going pretty long because everybody had to think their turns through were, uh, rather <laughs> explicitly, but a lot of fun. And uh, I realized that we have never given Lancashire a gaming moguls rating before. Ooh, but did it a uh, drum roll? What do you think it is? Calling it a 4D, Jake. Yeah, that's exactly where it's got to be. It's heavier than an average Euro, but probably not yep. by much. But there's enough gotchas where probably wouldn't recommend it as just a midweight family Euro kind of thing. 
Nope, it's definitely definitely more than that, but it's not super weedy either. Yeah, completely, completely. That sounds great. That was Brass Lancashire by Martin Wallace and Roxley Games. Very highly recommended by this mogul. Gotcha, yeah, and me too. I just haven't played it in so long. It's It's not really fresh in the mind. As I mentioned earlier in my play, I've had my cousins in town, and because I've been seeing my family during the COVID time, I've been able to play some games, which is more than normal. So oh, that's played, awesome. Yeah, it's been really fun. So we played Root, designed by Cole Worley and published by Leader Games. I recently traded for a copy of this. It ended up being the first edition, which is kind of cool. And I just really haven't played my edition, but both my cousins really like it. And I just really love this as a three-player game. It's almost gotten to the point where I've forgotten what the Trash Panda little, uh, what's the actual technical term for it? The little, the Wayfarer guy, the... Oh, the, 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 no, not Renegade, Rogue? Vagabond. Vagabond, thank you. Yeah, so we played without the Vagabond. We played with the three base factions. So we had the Toasts, a.k.a. the uh, Woodland Alliance. We had the Birds, yep. and we had the Cats, the Marquis de Chat. Little green toast. Yeah, absolutely. I love the little toast. And it was, it was just really fun. I really like it as a three-player game because functionally the green, who is me, has to like kind of balance who's winning too much. And the birds, it's probably the best I've ever seen somebody do with the birds because it seems like the birds get into a situation where they're always just like, two turns away from winning, but she was only one turn away from winning. So good job for her. And I ended up winning because as I mentioned, I killed all of the tokens at the very end, but they had been amply aware of the fact that that is actually a way to score victory points. I really love this game. My concern with it is I have yet to play with any of the factions and I've only really played it at three player. This is one of those games that I probably need to just get over the fact that it's more than a three player and four player game. Just mm-hmm. play it at all the different player counts and play different distributions. You know, it's one of those things where it's going to be fine. It's still a game of root, it may not be the most optimal game of root, but playing it at three or five is just going to be fine if there's one extra faction or something along those lines. Um, sure. I do have a question for you. Did your yep. edition come with the balance patch? No, it did not. I actually had the first edition version just like you did that did not have the balance patch. And I had already had it for you know, six months or a year when they came out with that. I did order all the upgrade stuff along oh, with gotcha. the most recent uh, Kickstarter expansion to it. So that was just an add-on to the Kickstarter expansion. So I got all that stuff. I immediately took all my old stuff out of the box and uh, hit it someplace. Yeah. <laughs> and I still have it. I don't know why. I like I'm ever going to play that again, but I still have it. Yeah, it's just I, I actually switched over to the second edition rules like a second they came out because I certainly saw the issues that they were talking about with some of the patches there and felt that it would definitely be a better game with those patches. Yeah, I recently bought the patches. I've yet to play with it. We've only been playing the first edition rules and point scoring things, but I did buy the things. It was only five bucks from Leader Games website. So big fans of them for supporting the game, even though they did the balance patch and it wasn't too hard to fix it and i'm in the same boat i kept all my old my old things why did i keep them am i gonna ever right. downgrade it like <laughs> right, and say right. oh no actually i do prefer it the original way no it's the new way on the note of uh, supporting later games to uh quick note later it's kind of the local boys to us they're located in saint paul which is but a few miles from you and but a few plus a couple more miles from me I personally know Patrick. I've met him on many occasions and a good friend of mine works in his booth and does demoing for kind of all the later games at big shows like Gen Con and so forth. So kind of one degree of separation from those guys and was more than happy when they recently just did the Fort preview order. And I I know I could have gotten it cheaper from somewhere else online, but I placed the order directly through later games just so I can help out the local boys. 
Absolutely. And I'm really excited for the game too. So that's all I have to say about Root. It's just fun. I really want to play this one. If this, if I was going to trim down my game collection to like 20 games, I think this one would make it, even though I don't Ooh. think it's one of my top 20 games. Makes the Desert Island cut. Yeah. I have noticed too, that one seems to have broader appeal than it should. Yeah, it's the toasts. It's the fact that everything's cute. It's the fact that the gameplay is way heavier than you'd think it'd be for what it is. And it's just fun. I mean, I'd never try to get my like wife to play it or something, but with people who are interested in games and you're not pulling the wool over their eyes, but it's an attractive, heavy, conflict, dense game. Yeah, and it's actually, it's played very well with my family too. Like my kids are very excited to play that again. Gotcha. Completely. It's, it's a great game. And you can buy like little root, little stuffed animals, which is kind of cute. Kids are probably <laughs> over that, but it's it's great. You can get the little vagabond as a stuffed animal from their website. It is one of the more merch friendly games that's come out in a while. I mean, I, I tried rolling out with my castles at Burgundy's plushies set and just didn't go anywhere, man. No, they were all, everybody complained they were all tan. Who would have thought? It's just a big old <laughs> pile of tan. So speaking of Castle Burgundy, that's my next game I played. Um, great transition there. <laughs> Uh, best in the business, Jake. Best there in the business. There it is. So we were, first little side note, the new edition of this came out and I did see it being played. I think it was the last night of games before COVID happened. Yeah. And man, we both went from super excited about the new edition. Are you going to buy the new edition now, Mark? Oh, heck no. Me neither. It looks, it's <laughs> no, no chance. Apparently it comes with the expansions, which I don't know if this game needs an expansion. It's so tight and good and has enough in it to not really, I don't think it really needs expansions. Right, no, really, I agree with you on that one. I don't think it's going to go to. And I, so we played this same same night that we played Root, actually, with the same group of people. And it's just so fun. I love this game so much. But the one thing that's interesting is I haven't taught this game in such a long time. For the listeners at home, I don't really give an explanation of what Castle Burgundy is. It's a Euro game where you're putting little tiles in uh, your little like tableau of your parcel of land in Burgundy. You're trying to make the most appealing and the best and whoever scores the most victory points is how you get it. But functionally, you do everything by the little dice in the game. You roll the dice and you do the dice as actions. Man, the theme is just so pasted on and it makes it really hard to teach because <laughs> right. the theme just doesn't matter. And so you get to this point where it's just like, I don't even know what these things are supposed to be. And my cousin, who's pretty theme dependent, liked the game. She liked it plenty, but it was just so hard to like build on a game like Root with what's going on theme wise in this game where it's clearly just a dry, boring Euro. But it's just so good. It is so good what it is. Yeah, this is one that I have never actually pulled out and played with my family for two reasons. Number one is every time I suggest it, they take one look at it and they go, no, can we play Root instead? Or can we play yeah, this can is, we play something with a little more theme to it? Yeah. And uh, that's one problem. The other problem, too, is for a game that I've played in excess of five or six times, you'd think I'd know this one just cold, right? I'd be able to just teach it just square out of the box. No chance. I don't know why. These, really? I cannot ever remember how to play this game. See, I'm the opposite. I actually have a point written down here. I don't actually ever teach the game because I think most people in our group know how to play it with a quick little, here's what all the things do. Here's a paste up sheet. Look at it for three minutes and we'll start playing after I'm done putting out all the tiles. I, w- I would need that for sure, which is funny because I've played this a bunch of times. Like, I, I don't think I'd need more than five minutes on it, but I'd need a you do this, you do this, you do this. Be like, oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. 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 Okay, yeah, things, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And so I think it would come back fast. Yeah. I haven't straight up taught this game to someone who's never interacted with it before. And it was just completely hard because you couldn't just rest on any theme. But it was fun. I had a good time. Lost to my cousin. He did really well at it. He got functionally an unchecked big old patch of animals and i think functionally if you do that and nobody else takes the cows from you you will win 
and he got all the cows, so he won. Yep, that, <laughs> that'll do it. No question about it. I remember being very excited when they announced that there was going to be a new version of it with new art, and we all were like, oh, we have to get this. This is amazing. This is exactly what the game needs. And then we both saw it and went, oh. It's just slightly more saturated. Yeah, that's really not any any improvement that's worth spending actual dollars on. Yeah, which is such a bummer because this game of like quality of gameplay, I think it's one of the top. It's it's like a best year. It's like a classic. But yeah. the fact that the theme is just non-existent, they could just theme this so much better. They could make it terraforming different planets. You need to have a different planet or something along those lines. That'd be really cool. And that kind of explain all the different patterns of stuff, you know. Just dead cold retheme it as terraforming Mars and it would be a better game than terraforming Mars. Yeah. I, there, I said it. Without a doubt. No, I agree. <laughs> this game's amazing, but it's just so boring and dull and just dice and different dice colors like even the goods they're just different numbers that's all they are there's no theme there they don't do anything different they're just different it's for patterns for pattern's sake so love it right. love castles of burgundy but the new edition just did not speak to me and maybe maybe it's great and probably get an email from a listener saying no you gotta buy it but to me no thanks so that's uh yeah. castle burgundy by steffenfeld and ravensburger it's a fun game play it Speaking of games that recently got a reskin and a re-new art design that I was very excited about buying until I saw it, <laughs> we got a chance to play Tribune as a family this weekend over the over on Friday night. This is a game I've been dying to teach my family for a long time, especially since my daughter has been in Latin class in school. Ooh. And what I didn't realize about Latin class is they actually spend a lot of time talking about Roman history and <laughs> the kind of the life and culture of Latin speakers. That like that never entered my brain that it was going to be anything more than just really dry vocabulary. She's always been very, very interested in kind of all things Roman history. And so I figured this was theme wise, a very natural thing for her to take on. And I was right. She not only loved it, she won by a lot. Awesome. (laughs) And just showed us how it was. So I've got the original edition that was published, I don't know, what, 10, 12, 14 years ago, whatever that is, a long time ago. This is one of the earliest games that I remember playing significantly. My version includes the expansion as well, which is kind of difficult to get right now, and I still have yet to play. That's on my short list of stuff to do. Likewise, too, when I saw the new version come out on Kickstarter here a couple months ago, I I couldn't do it. It didn't seem like it was improved enough, and it was a lot of money. Right. Yeah, so I mean, it's a niche publisher. They don't do big publishing runs. So it was expensive. I mean, it was a consolidation of all the expansions to be under one rule book. I think that was a big point. Like there were more modules than different expansion rules. But yeah, I saw it too. And I was I was assuming that I'd get like your down copy or something along those lines. You know, right. buy the new one, I'd get the old one, be no big deal. But it's just not good. It didn't look that good. Had I have not owned a copy, I 100% would have gotten the new one. No questions asked. But I looked hard at my copy my that's in perfect condition along with the new one and went, I think I'm good. Right. <laughs> I don't think I need to do this. It remains a, a game that uh, likewise, too, if I were to pick 20 games to just keep that like anybody would love, uh, that would probably be on the short list. Well, it's just it's such a playable game, you know, and, and there's something to be said about that of games. And I think we're realizing that now when we don't have a game group, really, we're playing with families and kind of stuff around those lines. It's nice to just have games that people like that everybody likes, you know, just. Just kind of mac and cheese games, I think, is your term. Right. Well, they they always talk about in football, you know, if you can get four yards on a run, you're going to win every single game. If you can average four yards a run. And this is this is a good, solid four yard run. Right. There's nothing better. Both teams are clapping. That's kind of the thing, too, in football, Mm -hmm. too, where it's like 
really? Both teams are clapping? You guys both ran four heads. It could have been way worse for the defense, you know, all that stuff. But <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. It's a much better game than that. I don't mean, I'm, I sound like I'm damning it with faint praise. It's a great game. But it's one that just everybody's happy about. Everybody feels good when they're playing. Everybody feels like they're doing something. Nobody feels bad. Nobody's really sure who won until the very end. Absolutely. So that's Tribune. So I made an opening joke in the intro about the Spiel des Jahres winner and about how, once again, we did not win it. But I'll tell you who didn't win it, Jake. The Kenner Spiel des Jahres winner is kind of my new favorite game right now. The Crew, The Quest for Planet Nine by Thomas Singh, published by Cosmos. Jake, this game is freaking awesome. <laughs> well, you keep telling me this, and it's so funny because, like, I'm still very into games, but I'm so not into the idea of, like, learning games right now, especially not knowing <laughs> when I'm going to get them played, you know? Because when you have the Wednesday group, it's like, you know what, the next two, three Wednesdays, I can probably get this game played, so I want to buy something like that. And, man, you keep telling me how cool this is, and I'm like, dude, I just, I am not in a time where I'm acquiring games right now. I still got this big old pile of games that are working just fine behind me, but you've just been geeking over it. The fresh and simple part about this game. So the, the core conceit is, is that is a cooperative trick taking game. And it's a cooperative trick taking game that has like 60 missions or something like that. Maybe 40. I don't remember somewhere. Lots of missions. And the idea is that you're as a cooperative group have to achieve this mission. And the missions are usually something like, OK, there's a uh, there's a four, a, a blue four, a pink six and a yellow nine out on the table. And everybody has to take one of those cards. And what happens is if the person that took the yellow nine does not win a trick that has the yellow nine in it, then everybody loses and you redeal and start over again. And there's always a little bit of there's some flavor text ahead of it. No, now you're trying to text test your oxygen system. Does it actually apply? Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> not, not in the least bit. A couple of them do. But most of them are just like, oh, hey, now we're doing four missions instead of three missions. And it'll say something in the text about, well, your last challenge was tough, but this one's tougher. It's cute. It's still worth reading and it's kind of humorous, but it doesn't really translate super well to what you're actually doing. Most of the missions are the type where you're putting out, you're dealing out some number of challenge cards. People select those and then they have to win those tricks. Where it starts getting really difficult is when you have to do them in a certain order. Like, okay, whoever has the pink three has to win that first. Whoever has the red five has to win that second. Whoever has the green one has to win that third. And if you do them, not only not winning those cards, but you if you do them in the wrong order, you lose the mission. So can you talk about your hand? Nope. There is no mm -hmm. table talk. Good, 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 good. good. Yeah, because nope. I think we'll like this game because I think it's going to be like a light grizzled without the emotional. Exactly. Package. For sure. And and the, the trick taking aspect of it is as bog simple as a trick taking game can get. It's literally like, you know, you lead singletons and you have to follow suit or you can slough. And there's a Trump suit with only four cards in it, which are like the rockets. And there's like a one, two, three, four of rockets. And so four of rockets is going to automatically win no matter what. And so you really got to make sure that you aren't stuck at the end with a four of rockets down to a trick you don't want to win. And the, the game is done the second you complete your missions, even if you're not out of hand. So if you get it on the first trick, you're done. You're on to the next mission. It even says in the book, it basically says, look, there's 43 trillion different combinations in this one. And quite honestly, some of them are ridiculously easy and some of them are impossible for the exact same mission. And that's been our case. There's been some missions where we looked at it and just literally got it on the first hand. Right. And then there's been other ones where it took us six or seven times on one that didn't look particularly difficult just because oh, it'd be a case that you had to win with a one on the last trick of the game. So you had to basically bleed everything else out. So literally, that was the only card of that color left and give the, that person the lead so that they could lead that suit 
and everybody else could slough. So they'd take it just by default, you know, so you had to engineer a bunch of weird little circumstances like that. Well, and, that, and that's intrinsic to trick taking games, right? They're just a more random game type, right? Yep. So that's why you yep. usually play a handful of hands and stuff, but it's, it's, it's probably fine in a co-op thing. Cause you just kind of grind through it, you know? Right. The other interesting twist is that about every four missions, there's something random. There's some weird little thing that doesn't really follow the formula. (laughs) And those are super interesting. Like there was uh, like mission five is something like where a sickness has befallen your spacecraft. And whoever the mission leader is, that's the person that gets dealt the four of rockets. Whoever the mission leader is has to pull everybody and they can answer with just one word, sick or well. And then the mission leader has to decide who's going to be sick, which person is going to be sick. And that person is not allowed to win a single trick. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And the problem is, is like everybody looks at their hand and this, like we've played it through that a couple of times. And every time you look at your hand, I go, well, I got a couple of good cards here. I'm probably, I'm well, I I feel good. And everybody around the table says good. And the, the mission commander will pick somebody. And you see that person just kind of shrug over and just go, oh, crap, you know, and they show their hand later on and they've got like the three of rockets, the two of rockets, all the nines. <laughs> right. Well, it's the same thing in teach you, right, where you're about to call teach you and your partner does. And it's like, yes, exactly. <laughs> how? How can you call teach you when I have teach you, you know? Right. Right. <laughs> oh, speaking of teach you, funny note, my wife was recently playing and got a double bomb and her partner called teach you. Oh, seriously? It was on the actual, the iOS game. She had a double bomb and she just goes, look at this. I think I'm going to win. I'm going to call T. <laughs> and then all of a sudden the teacher, the computer goes, teach you. And she's like, oh, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> oh, crazy stuff. So anyway, the crew won the Kenner Spiel this Yaris. It's a fantastic game. Everybody I've heard of that has played this game has absolutely loved it. And it's now available in the U.S. It wasn't for quite a long time. It was a German release last year, last fall at the Essen Spiel Game Convention, Game Fair. As of this spring, it's available via pretty much any place you can find games here in the U.S. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah, I'll have to pick it up. It's just I kind of want to try your version first. It's the same thing with the uh, Airland and Sea Seat. Is that, is that, is that what yep. it's called? Yep. Some ordering of those words that's not the heroes of. <laughs> yes, just airland and sea. <laughs> airland and sea. It's awesome. Gotcha. So anyway, that's the crew. You, you say you haven't played many games, Jake, but you also uh, alluded to another card game back in our rules screw up thing. Yeah. Well, it's, you got a chance to play Dairyman? Yeah, it's not really a card game. It's more of a dice game. So as I mentioned, I don't really have much more to say than my rule error, but it's a fun little game. So... Dairyman is designed by Chi Fen Chen and published by TMG slash Homo Sapiens Lab, um, TMG here in the North American market. They still have the Homo Sapiens Lab on it. It's a fun little game. So it's just a completely whimsical little art style, which is why I was drawn to it originally. And I think it was like five, 10 bucks at a convention, really cheap. But the thing that's kind of annoying about it is the rules are probably way too heavy for what it actually is. So all you're Mm. doing is you're rolling eight dice each turn. And each time you roll a die, you assign certain pairs on this little cardboard thing and or not pairs pardon me this is the ruler i just said a set set up to 10 of two or three dice if you ever don't get a set in your roll you bust and you lose your turn you don't get to buy any more things which is the whole point because you're trying to make the most milk and uh you get some minus tokens which then mean you get to roll more dice and there's some implications if you have the most when we run out of them you have to lose one of your milk things you've made but there's this, all these little like special rules and you don't really know how the turn structure works 
So you kind of end up referencing the rules a lot to try to figure out like how all these things piece together. And for a game that's like 15 minutes, um, the rules are probably way too heavy for what it actually is. But it's a really nice little dice rolly, push your luck kind of game that, that can be played really quickly, but it's a little bit too heavy rule wise. And so just giving it a mogul scale, it's got to be a 2A. You know, when I think of a game like that, I think of a game like uh, Oh My Goods or something that ostensibly is a pretty easy game, yet is probably more difficult to teach for what it actually is. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's it's that's a perfect example where it's like, well, what phase are we in again? It's just it doesn't have that flow. It doesn't have that snap of just like this is just gumming through really frictionless. It's it's there, there's a little more rules, MacGuffins and catch ups than you probably want it to have. but. I mean, it's a 15 minute game. And once everybody knows and they you get drawn into the art, it's it's really fast. It's just are you willing to get over that initial speed bump on it? This is one I still have not played yet. And by your description, I sure think I would. For some reason, it's just never worked out that I've been able to play it along with you. No, yeah, it's it's fun. I'll bring it sometime. It's a fun little light game. It's good. No big deal. Mm -hmm. Well, and I know several people in our group own it, too. So, yeah, it's just kind of random that I haven't bumped into it. I bet you you'll really like it because your 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 brain is pretty systemsy and it's a pretty systemsy little game. It's just light. Like the decision space is definitely an A. The only more confusing thing you can do is you roll your dice, you allocate them. There's some like reroll powers you can get. But functionally, depending on what the market's at, you either push for 40 or you're like content with 30 or 20. Sure. It's kind of it. Yeah, sounds fun. Speaking of games that are really, really, really simple to teach, when you don't screw the rules up, I did mention before we played Ride the Rails over the weekend, the latest in the Iron Rails series, number two game in the set, and got a chance to teach it to my family. Boy, we had a lot of fun playing it, Jake, and it did actually take a little longer to play than the hour that I thought it was going to because everybody was really thinking about, you know, kind of min-maxing the, okay, where do I go that gives me points and doesn't give my opponents points? My wife ended up absolutely wrecking us in this game, Jake, and I think we enjoyed it and looking forward to playing it again. So it's interesting. I have played this game once, and usually with train games, I play them once, and I'm like, yeah, I really want to play this again. I don't know why, but I'm not super jazzed to get right of the rails to the table. So I went up to my cabin last weekend, again with my extended family, other people, pretty much the only group of people I see, and it would have been a good fit for them because it's fast pretty good design wise. So my cousin could get interested in it and it plays different player counts pretty well, at least from my interpretation. I'm not so sure about that, but I'll well, it plays four and five. It play, let me rephrase that. It plays five. Correct. <laughs> that's okay, all, there we go. That's all I mean compared to a Euro game that tops out of four. Cause we had kind of five gamers there. Sure. And it was, it was, it was good for that group. And I just didn't bring it. I don't know what it was, but I just wasn't super interested in playing it. And I don't know what it is. And I'm hoping that this game, the fact that you have it is huge because I think sometimes you get put in a game where it's like you haven't made up your mind on it and the game definitely deserves more plays, but you're just not jazzed about it and you're not kind of jiving to play it. And for me, could be a huge variable here with the COVID and all that stuff. And it's probably not the game's fault, but it's kind of settling in that niche for me. You know, if I was to compare it to other games that are about its hmm, kind of in its its uh, its level, I would compare it to things like either Mini Rails or Irish Gage. Right. And I'm not sure that I would play Irish Gage with my family. Like that one might be a little weedy for them with the way the stock works and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I would definitely play mini rails with them for sure. And would I want to play mini rails over ride the rails? I might now that I think about it, now that I put those side by side. It's just so light. And, And don't get me wrong, ride the rails is pretty light for what it is, but it's kind of an arithmetic challenge, you know? 
Well, I realize that the game in Ride the Rails is trying to figure out how you can make money without making other people money. That's really where it is. And like, there's a point where I literally ran parallel tracks. You know, I was doing this long cross country route and there was a place where like, okay, so if it was color one, color two, color three, and color four, I had investments in color one, color two, and color four. And I didn't have in color three. And then my wife who was winning the game owned like three shares of color three. So if I were going to run all of that and get the extra town bonuses, which I needed to do to catch up, I would give her more points ultimately than I was getting by running that. So I ended up extending out color four to bypass like better than half of color three's track so that I only had to run over like one or two links of color three rather than four or five links of color three. Now, she still ended up winning, but that seems to me where the game is, is how do you make money and not let other people make money? Because Everybody is making money on virtually every run. It's just how do you try to make more than other people and especially the people that are winning the game? Right. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. I just, I don't know. It's just, I agree with everything you said. I just, I owe this game more plays, but it kind of feels laborious to pull it out and think about getting those plays. A lot of this hobby is really frictionless. Playing mini rails with a group of people is frictionless. I enjoy that game. It's fast. And I'm just hoping that Ride the Rails can get out of this weird niche. Which is why I'm so happy to sure. have it, because I think playing with you and the rest of the group will make it so I like it more. Mm-hmm. And it's gonna it's not going to be work for me to do that. Right. And I think it's one of those that once you sort of get used to how it works and the rules and stuff like that, I mean, a play of it's going to be more like half hour, 45 minutes. So, you know, when you start comparing it against other half hour, 45 minutes, it definitely isn't a filler. You know, it plays heavier than right. a filler, even though it doesn't take longer than a filler. Right. Right. Agreed. That's my thoughts on Ride the Rails. Glad I got a chance to play it. Still got more plays in it for me. Yeah, I think I think me too. Yeah, and that's the whole thing is I don't not want to play it, but I just need to I need you. I need you to I need you to be the man who's driving it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, and I think the I think actually the real win to all of this wasn't necessarily that I got the family to play Ride the Rails. It's just that now having played Northern Pacific and Ride the Rails, they're they're kind of getting in tune of what this whole cube rail thing is. Oh, and uh, across the United States, which is a kissing cousin, let's call it. Yeah, at least, you know, it's 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 in the same wheelhouse for sure. Yeah, now that and they love all of those games. I think that now I actually have a really good chance of being able to get Irish Rails to the table. Um, case, when yeah. I get mini when I get mini rails and it's sequel, I guess uh, when those finally come in, I'll have a good chance of getting those played and maybe even Chicago Express. Like I think yeah. I've opened their world to uh, cube rail games. Yeah, the only issue being how well do they do with auctions for Q, for Chicago Express? It seems like the auctions are one yeah. hand lost in that game on auctions. Yeah, that's why that's probably the peak of the mountain <laughs> for Agreed. those guys. Agreed. So that's awesome. So let's talk about the main topic for this evening. We're going to say main, but we always talk about games most. But our main discussion topic, which is teaching games, because I think we've been teaching games maybe a little bit more. Yep. Or maybe we're teaching games to a different subject to people, which makes you reevaluate what kind of your teachers like, right? Well, and I think the fact of that most of the way we teach games right now are either to maybe people that aren't full-time gamers mm-hmm. or maybe they aren't people that have quite the same shared experience as we have with the type of number of games that we've played. Or maybe it's not even in person. We have to do it we have to be able to kind of stretch out and teach a game in a way that's not as optimal if we were in place and could just point at a square and just go, okay, that's where that is. That's where that is. That's where that is. Now, suddenly we have to be more descriptive and we have to prepare a little bit better. 
so that the person that's getting the rules teach isn't just like, ah, uh, what, what, where, huh? Right, exactly. And, and I think we had such a good subject audience for the board game group when it came to learning rules. Like they just knew pretty intrinsically, like there was a lot of people that you would kind of lay out the board, gesture, do a few things, and they know how to play already, you know, because yeah. they can build on the shared knowledge they already have. Right. And just a little bit of background. The reason we're going into this topic today is the fact that Jake actually taught me something really valuable. Like when I very first joined the group and back when I first met Jake and Jake, I don't know that I've even necessarily uh, told you this in the past or so no, forth, you or, thank you I'm nervous. or thank you for it. I'm nervous. I thought I was a good game teacher. I thought I was good at uh, explaining games and so forth. But uh, between you and Uncle Kirk, I finally feel like I learned how to teach games like you guys always had it really well prepared. You knew the rules. It's like you, you, you know, you had played it before. You always had little teaching aids. It's like you had a mental script in place. And whether you did or not is immaterial. It's just that you knew you teach so well that it seemed like you did. Well, and I think a good point of that is exactly what we're going through now. So my family's gone up to a cabin that's owned by my entire extended family every weekend. So you're ranging from gamers who are just like Uncle Kirk or Tyler who are super into games or like maybe an in-law who's not as interested, but definitely smart, can figure out systems. And you have to be able to teach to all aspects of that. And that's why I find it so funny that people, side note, people say Wingspan is a great like newbie game. That game is way too heavy to be a newbie game. There's just so many. It's a newbie to gamers game, but it's 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 not. It's There's too many things going on. But yeah, well, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy to hear that we taught that too, because it's it's a good skill, you know? Right. Also too, I, I have a quite a deep personal background in teaching both my family wise, both of my parents were teachers. I also have been a ski instructor for a number of years as well. So I've and well, on top of that, I was a corporate trainer for a bunch of years teaching things like Java and JavaScript and enterprise Java bean servers and so on and so forth. So I in many parts of my life have done something that involves teaching or training. And it's something that I enjoy doing and take a lot of pride in doing and so forth. And I realized at that point that I needed to step up my game when it came comes to game teaching since then have kind of devoted myself to making my game teach part of the good experience of playing the game. Absolutely. So why don't we kind of explain a little bit both of our rationales for gaming teaching and and try to verbalize some of the things that we've learned. So first to start off with, why do we have to teach these games? Um, (laughs) Well, because honestly, it ain't easy, kids. (laughs) I'm here to tell you it's a bunch of extra work. Somebody taking the time to learn a game well enough to teach it, to make sure that you have a good experience. You know, that's kind of one of those uh, another angel just turns its wings moments. Yeah, it's so funny because you always hear about different board game communities and how they deal with things. And one thing that apparently is really common in the war game community is if we are both going to play a game next Tuesday, we'll just both read the rules for it separately. And that's become a thing on the 18xx asynchronous community because you can't really teach. But in person. I mean, everybody shows up to our game night for the first time. They're like, well, I don't know how to play. I'm like, we all don't know how to play. We promise we'll teach you. And apparently it's right. like not a common thing, but yeah. And, 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 and there's something to be said as an extension of this too, is usually whenever you're the teacher of a game, you are kind of hosting the game and you're yep, not really an sure. active player versus, and it kind of sets up this like game runner, game participant dichotomy between the two. And so usually the benefit for the hoster is they get to choose what they get to play but the benefit for the players, they don't have to own any games and they don't need to learn a game before before effect and teach everybody. Yeah. And there's definitely some benefits like that that I have seen personally. For example, like I am hardwired where I like to be a tour guide. 
when we go on vacation, I'll plan the itinerary and I'll learn kind of everything about every place we're going so that I can kind of be the tour guide as we're walking around. And I, I really enjoy doing that. And I feel a bit like that with board games where when I'm running a game, I feel like I'm being a tour guide for that game, sometimes to my own detriment and being able to play because I'm a little more worried about making sure other people are having a good time and having the rules answered than I am about really planning out my own turns. Right. And I've used to be more similar to that, but now I'm kind of just really wanting to just get into the game and not wanting to have any tour guide because that assumes that these people don't already know what what I'm showing them. Right, right. Kind of relying on that analogy a little bit too much. But yeah, I completely agree. And so I'm becoming a person now where like if somebody asks me for a restaurant recommendation, I get really nervous about it because I don't want to give them a bad recommendation. And it's kind of becoming that way with games too. I'd rather have everybody kind of commit to a game we all like instead of one that I think everybody's going to like. At least that's been something that's kind of happened in my recent. You don't do these things and put the effort into them that we do unless you really enjoy doing it. And and quite frankly, I enjoy it. I like it. I have a good feeling at the end of the night, if I have taught a game well and people walk away from the table having had a great time and probably beating me because they understood the rules well enough that they outplayed me who had a head start in the game. That to me is actually a big win in my book. Completely agree. Mine's maybe the opposite side of that coin where I don't feel good if I do it well, but I feel bad if I do it bad. And so it's just more of a bad thing. And I mean, it's, I, I learn games a kind of different way. As I've learned games, I find I'd learn games less well than other people. And so by presenting the information in a way that makes sense to me, it usually makes sense to other people as well. It's good you brought that up because there are a lot of different learning styles. And this is something that when you when you get into doing training or teaching, that they'll really emphasize the fact that people learn in different ways. And it's important to appeal to everybody at the table's different learning styles. Now, if you know that everybody at the table has a specific way of learning, you can shortcut a lot of this. Like you don't need to manually move things around if you know that everybody's already read the rules and just needs a refresher. But some of the different ways that are commonly referred to in teaching, there are visual learners, right? Uh, visual learners when it comes to board gaming would be the case where like in Brass Lancashire last night to demonstrate what is a network versus connected. I put out three different colored canal boats out on there to show that, okay, when I go across all the different colors from this town to this town, that's connected. When I just travel across my canal boats, those are in network. And it makes it really obvious for somebody that's in visual. Right. There's also auditory. So you think it's just going to be listening. But as it turns out, a lot of auditory people prefer to read things as well because of the fact that auditory people read out loud in their brain. Mm-hmm. So it's like as they're reading it, they're hearing themselves talking about it in the brain, in their brain. So sometimes reading things can be just as effective as speaking to an auditory person. Gotcha. Auditory tends not to work well at all for me. I tend to be kind of visual in reading. I want to kind of pre-read and then I want to have somebody show it to me and probably emphasis on showing to me. Well, I think I'm the same way. because I tend to hear a lot of blah, blah, blah. What in I, the when XX rules, that's what I do because I end up like referencing things and already making examples for myself based on what I've just read or heard, right. for example, right? And then the final example, which maybe doesn't apply quite as well to board gaming, is kinesthetic. Kinesthetic is um, how you feel it. How, in what manner do you interact with it personally? So in terms of skiing, this would be the case on like you want to feel your shins painfully hitting the front of your ski boot as yeah. you're pushing your knee forward. Put a quarter in there so the quarter doesn't fall. Right. That's a kinesthetic because you're imagining what that would feel like. And that's 
And it's not super applicable for board games, but that is one of the. <laughs> you roll the dice. You want to make sure. Feel it tumbling around your hands several times, and then the crisp release as you fling it across 100%, the table. Hundred percent. Yeah, there, there, that's not really maybe like dexterity games, but yeah. And so I think you hit the nail right in the head. You have to be able to present to all of those different people in different ways. So maybe fully read out the full, or maybe not read, because I. The other thing, I'll hit this in a second. I don't think you can read the rules to a group of people because then you do the no, thing like you do at church, where if you're only reading the passage, you're not actually inflecting it like a normal person would. So it just sounds like a big old block of text and you yep. can't do that. So when you usually announce, usually how I do it is I'll announce what's happening. So for example, in root. So here's what you can do on your turn. You can do this, this, and this. I'll first say that. Then I'm going to say, for example, for the first example, XYZ here is moving. Here's how moving works. It has to be from somewhere you rule or to somewhere you will rule by the end of your move. You know, something along those lines of that, where you can actually show physically what it's doing. I'm moving with my hands, but you can't see because it's a podcast. But you have to first explain it. And so I leave that to the to, to the auditory listeners, uncomplicated, a full, like reading exactly what it says in plain English, a way that I can interpret to them. Then I show them for the other people. So you can kind of hit it and drill it both ways. One thing that that really does is that puts a onus on the game teacher to understand the rules well enough that they can explain it in their own voice. Correct. That you know the rules in a way that you can condense, combine, and say it in a plain English, easy to understand fashion that's not confusing. And, you know, I I certainly screw it up, especially if it's something that I don't understand maybe myself super well. And that's almost always a call out to the fact that there's something I need to learn better if it's if I find myself yada yadaing my way through something I'm trying to explain to people, I'll like, let me stop and read this specifically from the book for a second. And maybe that's one case where I'll huck out to the book for just a second. If there's one little thing that I find I'm not explaining clearly. Well, and I think another version of that too is rule books are explained the best for somebody to read the rules, but through the conversation you're having, maybe it makes more sense for you to teach things in a different way, depending on how the conversation's working. If they're really interested in this part of the board, just explain that part of the board so it's out of the way. I will say also, too, it's way easier to give visual examples in person. And that's one of the big shortcomings we're finding with the age of virtual gaming right now. Yeah. Is that in person, you can point to something, you can move a piece around, you can very quickly set things out. Whereas if you're trying to do it in tabletop simulator, okay, now I'm going to browse inside this bag and I'm going to visually scan for the piece I'm looking for. Then I'm going to pull it out and then I'm going to put it on there. And by the way, the person on the other end of the computer may not even be focused on that corner of the board. Right. They're like rolling a die or flicking something, you know. Right. Right. So that's something that's always definitely more of a challenge with playing virtually is how did you appeal to the visual learners on a computer screen? And I'm getting better. You know, Tabletop Simulator is this little thing where you can tap the tab key and make a little bouncing arrow that dings. Yeah. (laughs) That's, man, that's been a big help. I don't know how I would live without that thing, but. It's definitely more of a challenge. No, agreed. And I think another point that I always try to hit, exactly as you're saying it, show people where to find the information for themselves. Oh, absolutely. So, and I think that's exactly the point that you're hitting with the aids or something along those lines. So Castleberry is a perfect one. I don't explain what the yellow things do anymore. I just show them where they can find the information for the reference for the yellows and I explain the two or three that are out there at the start of the turn. Because it doesn't make sense for me to go through all of them. You need to be able to find that information for me. That makes a lot more sense because there's such a big amount of information that I'm first downloading when somebody's explaining it to me. I have to make sure to filter what's the important stuff and what isn't the important stuff and giving people touchstones and places to come back to be able to find that information that may not be important now, 
but maybe in the future is very important. So they can always cross-reference and be able to pull that information from themselves down the line. For example, last night with Brass Lancashire, there's a lot of stuff on the board where you've got really good references already, like how much does it cost to build two rail links or how much does it cost to build a canal link? All that stuff is right on the board, and it's just a matter of pointing to it so that people can see where they can find that for themselves. Yeah, I completely agree. By that note, though, Jake, what do you think about passing out like the, the full quick reference guides before you do the teach so that people can have them in front of them? It's that that's more controversial than it sounds. It depends. If you're with a group of people that you know well and they're still going to make eye contact with you, it's a great idea. However, my good compromise is if it's big enough, I put one out and I gesture to the one and then I give it to them. Yeah, because I think it's important to set up where to self-serve the information from. But what I don't want people necessarily doing is to, you know, kind of check out and just sit and read that thing while you're off doing that. Now, maybe that's them signaling that you're not teaching the way they want to be taught. You know what's lacking in that information, you know, right, and it's, it's right. going to take more time for them to realize that than it is for you to just present them the information the way that you want it to be presented. Yeah. And the biggest one is what are they missing while they're reading the, the little guide while you're busy explaining something else? And I think that's the main point with that's bad with TTS is you can't see what they're looking at. If there's like a screen, right. to see what their screen was, maybe that'd be better because then you can make sure it's kind of like getting the eye contact thing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, completely agree. Now, one of the big challenges we run into all the time, and I think Tichu is the uh, the gold standard for this one, is how much rules do you teach versus how much strategy do you teach? Now, sometimes it's unavoidable. Like we often have to teach the strategy to even play the game in the case of teach you. But in most cases, not right. You you want to teach them how to play the game, but you don't necessarily want to tell them exactly what to do in the game. Where do you draw the line, Jake? So it's hard. My line is, can I teach them the strategy throughout the game or do I have to teach them at the beginning? I will always go towards teaching strategy throughout the game versus teaching at the beginning because I think people sure. gum on to whatever you say at the beginning a little bit too much, especially if you're providing just a small amount of strategy tips. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, so like an 18xx, for example, I won't tell you buy as much trains as possible, but if I'm in a situation, it's your turn. I'm certainly going to say, hey, why don't you buy some more trains? I did things like about two thirds of the way through the canal phase last night, I talked about and I said, hey, turn order is really important going into the second phase. But you probably want to do what you can. Like, I didn't tell them specifically how to do that. They're smart. Right. <laughs> but I did say that, you know, turn order is pretty important at the beginning of the rail phase. So yeah, you might want to do what you can to try to jockey for that. Completely agree. And in an ideal world, you would teach enough and the group would be just fine kind of knowing that it may not be the most optimal play for them the first time. But they should be at least in enough where, no, they're not just completely drowning. And I think it depends on the game, right? Like Teach You is the perfect example because teaching the rules to Teach You is almost as synonymous as teaching the strategy to Teach You because it's just, you can't really play it. And if somebody's going to be in a point where they're going to make really, really, really bad decisions and ruin their game, I'll teach the strategy. But if it's a Euro game where maybe you were super inoptimal for the first couple of turns before you figure everything out, that's fine. That's fine. No mm -hmm. deal. But Teach You, I mean... By playing, calling teach you wrong, that's game, right? I mean, that's it. You know, and if you write right, something, right. you lead the wrong card. And if you're in a situation where you're left over with just the dog and you have no way to take over the tricks, that's it. That's over. Game's over, right? And you're impacting the enjoyment of the person you're playing with. You might actually be a very experienced player. Right. I completely agree. So it's at least my thing. What about you? How, how, how much strategy do you teach? I will often hone in on like three really important points that are, if you don't know this thing, 
you're screwed. Like cases on antiquity, right? If you spend all your wood, you're dead. Right. Little things like that, that, yeah, you can spend all your all your wood and not have enough to, what is it, to pay upkeep or something like that? You have to build buildings with it. And if you don't have it, you can't build more buildings, something, or it's the, 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 the logger guy needs wood to start. So if you don't yeah. have a wood, you can't like plant more wood functionally. Right. So there's a few like gotchas. If there's a gotcha in there that if you don't do this thing that you are going to have a bad time, those types of things I will call out and I'll just say, hey, watch out for this. There's a big payment coming up. That's expensive. Watch out for that. Or, hey, there's this thing. Don't worry too much about it. Like uh, with our play of the Feast for Odin with my family over the weekend, I reminded everybody that you probably don't need to spend much time worrying about feeding your family the first couple turns. You're getting enough from the harvest that you don't need to worry about it. Kind of the same thing with uh, with Caverna, right? You you really don't need to trip on yourself to make sure you get fed for the first couple of feedings. You've been provided with enough and you should really spend your time locking and loading for other things going on in the game and not right. worrying about feeding. Completely agree. You know, worry, worry about building a feeding engine, not feeding. Yeah, I'm also really worried when you teach strategy in the beginning, unless exactly as you said, you trim it to a few points, they can, new players can like gum on to really strange things. Oh, yeah. I, think it's really well, I thought you said it was important to. Yeah. No, it's like, I mean, I did, but like, I didn't mean it. And it's like an inflection thing and it gets worse with TTS. And more of a macroscopic, holistic thing, let's put it together on how we actually explain the rules fully. You bet. So I think the first thing you got to do is you got to start with the theme, right? You just got to bring them in because you can either Set rely on that. Right. Yeah. You can either rely on that in the future and like use that as like a filter for everything or. Maybe just glum over in the case of Castle Burgundy and just say you're in a beige world full of beige. <laughs> <laughs> it, the, the success and productivity of the theme is dependent, but usually it's the best place to start. Yeah, because if nothing else, that will get them interested in it. And most games, and you're right, Castles of Burgundy is a bit of an exception, but most games, a lot of the rules are tied to the theme or a lot of the things you're doing. And if you understand what that theme is, a lot of the stuff you're doing makes more sense. And will help you inform your decisions on what you should be doing or why you're doing the things you're doing. So right. for sure, start with introducing the theme. After I'm done with that, I'll always start with introducing the, with the goal is the goal of the game is to earn the most money by the end of the game. Or it's a point salad. You're going to be judged on a whole bunch of things, but mainly it's the how many sets do you have? How much money do you have? And how many contracts did you fill? That type of thing so that you people go into it going, right, OK, as I'm listening to the rules, I can focus in on the way to do those things. And I think you hit the nail right in the head. You can't be too detailed with scoring. I think no. you can get very in a lot of weeds by saying, OK, here's how to score at the end. Let's take Lorenzo Magnifico at the end. If I were to read, OK, all of your purple cards, your blue cards score this way. Your purple cards will have the victory points on them. And then this many for each one of the resources, you would immediately be taken out of whatever sort of flow I'm going because now you're intrinsically searching for what those things are. Right. And the people are no longer following your lesson plan. They're doing whatever they want to do and looking around the board. It's frankly just not important to know that gold is worth one victory point for every 10 at the end of it or something like that. But high level, this you want to get victory points. Here's a symbol for victory points. You get them through various ways, which I'll hit throughout the gameplay. But mainly XYZ, you'll get them through the purple cards or whatever in the game. What I will do is I will go back and I will loop back to the to the scoring, probably at like the uh, three quarters point. Somewhere three quarters through the game, I'll stop and I'll just go, hey, Now's a great time. Let's recap what the final scoring looks like. And at that point, then I'll actually tell them 
all the scoring things because by by that point they usually understand the game well enough that they're like okay yep contracts got it building got it got it got uh oh oh okay resources are worth one for every three okay gold is worth one for every ten and they actually have the context at that point to be able to understand the uh, the more subtle bits of scoring agreed and then also with our future point if you can point out where they can find scoring that's a great way to do it as well but I cannot stress yeah. enough, don't give them the most detailed minutia of how to win and with the with victory points or something along those lines until the very end. Like, like yeah, you don't want to give them too much. Right. They just will not understand, like, how important is that? How how hard is that thing to get? How So they might really laser beam on the, got it, gold, get gold. Whereas, you know, that might be a really minor point of what the scoring is. And there's something that is a, a, a far and away driver, like, I'll say... Hey, 90% of the scoring is done at the end of the game or 90% of the scoring is along the road at the end of the game and the end of the game scoring is kind of minor. I think that's a pretty important point to bring up as well. Agreed too. completely agreed. Being that we now have kind of talked about what happens at the end of the game, I think it's important to define the bounds of the game. Like what is the structure of the game? This is where you get into, okay, it's eight rounds long and the game end condition is when somebody stands up in the air and plays the hokey pokey and throws their card at the next person. Right, exactly. And to define that is important because a lot of times people won't know when the game end happens and they'll say, well, I didn't know the game was going to end. Do gesture exactly how long it's going to be. And even if it's just a side sentence and pointing out that information to find it, okay, when we bank breaks, the bank is $8,000 or once the set, the final appeasement of the church happens in the, in the third phase of Lorenzo Agnifico, it's over. You know, you have to give them an end point. I, I look at it a lot like track and field day, Jake. Yep. You're going to run four laps of the track, and there's going to be eight things you have to jump over along the way. Doing some steeplechase, got it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I had to make it interesting. 100-yard dash isn't a no, horribly not, interesting example. No, it's, it's, it's not, and I'm not good at it either. Not good at any running, but I was <laughs> no. okay at the mile at one point in time. No, completely agree. And so then that also leads into a perfect chance on how to pivot to the turn flow and what you do in your turn. Because you start with all the big topics. Okay, where are we? What are we trying to do? How does this end? And now what are we doing, right? And this is a great time to introduce the reference card to pass mm-hmm. to show them. Okay, so the turn flow is right there. Uh, it's printed on the right corner of the board right there, or it's printed on that reference card right in front of you. Or maybe it's something that it's literally just as simple of, you're going to select one of these 10 actions. Right, and then they can start pointing to each one. Right. I, I think a good bit of information is don't put out too many of those reference cards because you might lose people's focus. Yeah, exactly. And that, like Jake said, that's the time that I often will go through. Like if there is a take actions flow of the phase, what I'll do is I'll start. I'll give the high level. OK, first up, you refresh the board. Then everybody bids for turn order. Then you take your actions and then you earn income at the end or something like that. Now, take actions. That's the point at which if there is an action phase and there's a bunch of action spaces to take, that's when I'll go through and I'll start explaining, okay, here's the actions. Here's what you can do. Here's how they're ordered. I'll often go through and kind of order them to either easiest to hardest or most important to least important. It depends. On the, it depends on the game. In A Feast for Odin, I'll always start with the market spaces because they're the easiest ones to understand. Put a guy here, get some stuff. Yes, I usually do the same thing with easiest. And then also another lurking thing in that. So we start with the easiest. Usually the complicated ones involve the easy ones. So you yes. can get like a yeah, holistic yeah. view of the easy ones. And then the more complicated ones will play off each one. Because it's all about, you don't want to introduce some. My, my biggest pet peeve in gaming is when you say, okay, well, here's the trees. 
And then you have to go on this big tirade of the trees and what the trees do, for example, as a resource. And then mm-hmm. you get into a point where you don't even remember what the original point was. You got to keep <laughs> right. You, what you're trying to say is here's the trees. They do X, Y, Z. But then you had to go on this big tri- tirade on how to like get the trees or something along those lines. You really want to avoid the dovetailing of rules and nestling them on top of each other. You want to keep them kind of fragmented, I think. So they're more whole ideas and they can stack on each other versus yep. bouncing around from one to another and being kind of a zigzag. Last night was a case where I actually did it most important to least important rather than easiest to hardest. Right. Uh, in the case of Brass Lancashire, because really the most the, the game is centered around being able to build buildings. Right. And so you need to understand that action and kind of everything else builds out from that. All the all the other actions are really easy to understand beyond that. And once you understand the concepts around that, then it's actually pretty easy to understand the rest of the game. Yeah, completely agree. And so then I kind of do the same thing with um, Lorenzo Magnifico. I first kind of define the symbols because those are simple and easy to explain. And you can do that perfectly with that little scroll action, right? So explain that one first, right? That's an easy one. Hey, you know all the symbols. We're kind of getting little kernels on how to move things. Then I can go to, okay, well, why am I moving in the Pope track? Well, I can explain that down here and all that stuff and all that stuff. And, And it defines better. But you really want to set the stage so that things will build on each other versus zigzag around. And I think you brought up a really, really important point right there, Jake. Define the iconography. Yep. Because oftentimes that is your number one tool for letting people self-serve their own information and their own teaching. If they can understand how to read the iconography well in the game, that is going to eliminate 90% of their questions. If it's a game that's designed worth a darn. There are some games that just doesn't freaking matter because there's so many icons or they're so weird that it doesn't help. But if, if you understand what the iconography well, in most cases, you can look at it and go, okay, two resources can't be the same. Got it. Understand. Gotcha. Completely agree. Take time. Explain the icons all over the board so that people can read the game for themselves. And that is going to make them ask less questions and be able to make smarter decisions and have a better game experience. Absolutely. Gotcha. So then after I define how all the things work and kind of what all of the options are, then I'll circle in the detailed end game scoring if there is any. And if I couldn't define it at the beginning, because like with 18xx, it's really simple. It's okay. Here's how much your shares are worth. Here's your cash you have on hand. Whoever's the most cash and share value wins. That's it. You know, like there's no no need to circle back. But in a Euro game, I find it's very important at this point in time to circle back, you know. Yeah, this is a case where it's funny, perversely, an incredibly complex game like 18xx during the game, the end game scoring is the easiest thing on the planet. You know, it's literally how much money do you have? Mm -hmm. Whereas Euro games, like the hardest ones to explain are the point salads where it's like, okay, there's this plus this plus that plus that. And it's it's even worse when you don't have where you have games where there isn't a lot of along the way scoring, you know, where it's all scored at the end. Right. Or if there's ones where like 25% in the beginning, 75 is at the end, because then it's that thing where did you miss something in the in the middle? If it's kind of rare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but completely agree. And usually it's the same time pointed out on the cards. A lot of the player boards, for example, on a Euro game will have little end game scoring, like some arrow pointing to a line. It's kind of the symbol everybody uses now. And use that. Use that's the symbol for end game scoring. Here's how you can find it. And what I'll often do, too, is especially kind of at the half or three quarters points. I'll set out the score pads. If there's if the game has a score pad, I'll just set them out because, again, then everybody can use that as a reference on how are we going to be scored? Gotcha. Completely agree. 
And then finally, I think after you do the end game scoring kind of that second time, you can kind of circle back to the edge cases and like some gotchas that may exist. So for example, if there's like these two rules are kind of in contradictory, explain which one does it. Or if there's some weird thing like Le Havre docs, um, that's a great time to do it. Yeah. Like the case where, you know, in the, at the very end of Le Havre, everybody can do an action at the end. Right. And that's the only time in the game where people's workers don't block. Everybody can do that thing. You still have to pay for it. And by the way, you do have to move your piece. So if, if you're sitting, you know, at the business office or something like that to sell stuff, the turn before the end and you're expecting to use at the end, no, you're going to have to get up and move and go someplace else. So uh, I'll give people a heads up on that one, kind of two thirds of the way through the game. Another one that I'll give people a heads up on, and actually, this is an interesting thing from Lancashire from last night. Lancashire does not allow you to take loans in the last eight actions of the game, really. It's the last four rounds. Yep. You're not allowed to take any loans at all. And there's actually a little card in the deck that says, after this point, you're not allowed to, or, oh, sorry, this is, it's actually a warning and saying, this is the last turn. Right. After this, you will not be allowed to take loans. And again, kind of reminding people going into that, that was a nice little built-in reminder saying, hey, this is your last turn that you can take loans. If you want any money for the end of the game, you know, speak now or forever hold your peace. Right. And that's a good time to throw stuff like that in. Completely. But I think you're hitting the nail right in the head. You don't need to teach the entire rules right at the beginning. If there's little end capes and gotchas, right. we believe this. Our group is very forgiving. And usually we know that the first play is a learning play. Maybe if you have really competitive people, you won't get this. But you really don't have to say like that, for example, that perfect example. Or like maybe a thing I always used to wrestle with when I was first starting is people wanted to learn how to run the game. I don't need them to run the game. I'll run the game. I'll flip all of the islands in... Uh, in Feast for Odin. I don't need you to know how that works. I just need you to know how to play your game. I'll flip the islands and stuff along those lines. And so you can kind of cut some of that information out, assuming that your group's okay with it, um, just to make it so that they can actually focus on playing their game well versus being able to, if you were to leave somehow or teleport away halfway through the game, they could finish it. And I think this is a, this is super important in a case where there are additional action spaces that get revealed over the course yep. of the game. Caverna being one of them, or, for example, Lahav, right? You don't need to teach what every building does. You just need to teach here are the actions you can do and when new buildings are available to be bought, then I'll explain them. But I do think it is important to foreshadow that those things exist. Like, yes, there are these things called boats. Here's what they do. You won't be able to build it till farther down in the deck. That's coming. And I'll explain that when it pops up. But I just I need you to be aware of the fact that that exists. Also, there's a card deeper in the deck that lets you sell goods off if you, you know, if you have ships. You need to know that's there. You don't need to know specifically how it works right now. And there's a lot of games like that where I will only teach kind of the starting setup. And as different spaces are revealed, I'll give the details on those reveals. But I will make sure and let people know that, hey, by the way, there is a way to get rubies. It's coming up later. And I totally imagine that there's some groups that probably don't work that way, but I just don't think that's a productive way to play games if you're going to run every single first time play of a game as an incredibly competitive experience where you need to know all that information from the get-go and i think with those people maybe just tell them hey we're going to play this game you read the rules right yeah for people that do need to know all of that information up front that is a case where yes giving them a heads up on the game so they can read it in the future is definitely a plus and that's not always easy for me because I a lot of times like to make a, a game day decision on the game. So right. somebody says, hey, what are we playing next week? I'm like, I don't know. I have no idea. 
right completely but yeah and i i think that's very important for games is just limit their total amount of data they have to download if it they don't need to know how to run the game they don't need to know all of that stuff they don't need to know how to clean up after a turn unless it impacts them directly or something along those lines i can reset the board in caverna they don't need to know that they'll see that after the first play that stuff's going to come back out and they can learn that as they go you don't need to front load all of that information so anyway, that is a little bit of a reflection on how we look at the art of teaching games. And, you know, hopefully each of you can take a little bit of knowledge out of that and improve your game teach and help your game group get a little bit better at it. And I guess the final point that I would bring up is that an ounce of preparation is <laughs> worth a pound so of good far. table teaching. Make sure that you know the game intrinsically when you try to teach it. That's not saying you can't teach on the fly. God knows I do it and I almost always pay for it. But you know, it happens. The more time you spend preparing for it and knowing it internally, the better it's going to go for everybody. Completely agree. And can you imagine, like we always talk about accessibility to a game, game group and board games and all that stuff. Can you imagine going to a game group now where you just sit down and somebody cracks the shrink on a game? <laughs> First time you play it? Kill me. That's that's such an unattractive way to present these, these <laughs> games, you know, just like as a, well, I guess we're going to learn together. Hopefully you can understand what I'm going to say as I'm reading it in a very flat monotone voice with no inflection and not i've never read it before but i've heard it's fun here we go yeah no i mean just like prepare it's worth it respect the people's time you're playing with respect your own time and just try to maximize the fun for everybody well jake what's great about this is that with all this new knowledge we'll be all set to teach new games coming up at midsumcon this weekend and gen con in a week in two weeks right oh it's gonna be great can't wait Uh, for the listeners, that is heavy dose of sarcasm. Both are canceled. Uh, Let me rephrase that. I think MidsumCon still going on. I haven't checked. I knew I wasn't going, but Gen Con was fully canceled. And it's just a bummer, dude. I was so looking forward to games. And um, I think we made the call to cancel outside of MogulsCon, which has been postponed for a while. We canceled our little like friends cabin weekend this fall, our buddy con weekend. It's just sad, you know? I mean, like it's I don't know when we're going to start getting back to like normal games. Yeah. And I think the big challenge here is that it's not possible to social distance while playing games. No, I mean, you're you're in once you're in, you're in. You can wear a mask, maybe. But I mean, you're still just in. You're in front of each other for so long. Right. So we've had to probably make some very pessimistic decisions on exposure for everybody. And but having said that, man, uh, this next couple of weeks as a gamer is going to be rough on me missing out on a couple of the events that I really look forward to every year. Completely agree. Well, to maybe happier times down the pike, I guess, <laughs> you know? Yep. I know Jake and I are going to try to get together and play something this weekend. We're going to try to play some 18xx in real time. We're having a little trouble with timing scheduling, but I think it'll work. We will and, uh, figure it out. Reach out to me. If you can. Uh, I probably want to play something in a couple of weeks because I will be cranky about not being a Gen Con. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. It was a fun episode. We got to do these more often. I know, man. Uh, and honestly, we, we say we're not playing enough games, but we are. I actually, we, I left a lot of stuff off of here. So mine, so I'll do, this will be my final note for the podcast. I did my note. This is from, to get all that stuff, it was from July 9th. So two weeks. <laughs> well, that's not that bad. Two weeks. Not bad, not great. Two weeks. And there's 18xx's pe- peppered in too, but didn't really need to talk about 18xx's anymore than we already did so yeah we kind of we we doubled down on that last week or last time all the energy in my voice (laughs) (laughs) well good night everybody i think we've talked plenty enough sounds great everybody that was jake i'm mark good night everybody thanks for listening this has been the gaming moguls podcast co-hosted by mark teske and jake kloppenstein 
please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.